Do you like comics? We're here to talk comics. This is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. Final Fantasy music and Joki Saishi, because uh, I watched Totoro with uh, Charlie yesterday. Oh, man. How did that go? Oh, that went really well. That that movie has some parts in it that are a little more intense than I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, as every movie does, we watched Muppet Christmas Carol with Charlie. Freaked him out. We <laughs> watched Totoro with Charlie. Uh, Totoro's actually kind of scary for a large part of the movie. Totoro? Yeah, because he's he's got this big loud growl like a monster. That's true. And he's got a big mouth and it looks like he's going to eat this kid. <laughs> but... Charlie seemed to like it. He keeps asking to watch the Totoro movie again. So, you know, that's something. Oh, excellent. Anyway, between those, you know, Final Fantasy music, Johei Seishi, there's a lot of good orchestral music from niche properties from Japan. I don't know if Ghibli is necessarily considered niche, but okay. Or Final Fantasy. (laughs) That's a little indie darling, a little hit that uh, we just can't get enough of. Maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) Well, speaking of uh, niche indie darlings, let's talk about Marvel Comics. <laughs> oh, man, they started Ooh. making comics for the movies? I know, oh. it's pretty weird, huh? Wow. Spider-Man! I always thought Spider-Man could do with a good comic book. Yeah, I mean, Evan knows he's got plenty of bad ones. <laughs> this is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. We're here to talk about the comics that we read, primarily through Marvel Unlimited, because... I am too cheap to buy comics anymore. Uh, John, Aldo, how are you guys doing? How were your holidays? Well, they went well. <laughs> Good diplomatic answer. <laughs> I was waiting for Aldo to say something funny I could riff off of. Because mostly I was like, oh, they're over. Yeah. Chill, you know. My mom my mom did make tomatoes, and those are delicious. Wait, your mom made what? Tomatoes. <laughs> Do you mean tamales? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I thought I was going crazy for a second. I was like, oh, there's a new dish I haven't heard of. This will be good. And I was like, is he saying tomatoes? No. Is he saying tomatoes? Yes. That doesn't... Why? And my brain was not writing it out for me. Yeah. Well, I guess in 2014, they would be more like today's. Stop it. Stop. Gosh, I don't like that joke. (laughs) No, it's not a great joke. (laughs) But where else am I going to workshop my comedy if not the internet? How about Netflix? (laughs) He's inflicting his humor on us. Uh, Anyway, so this is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. We're here to talk about a couple of single-issue stories that we found on the Marvel Unlimited app that we wanted to to read because we wanted some light reading for the, you know, post-Christmas period. And it's a good thing we did that because I didn't do my reading until today, which is actually unusual for me. How... How... Steven, how, I can't believe you would do such... Yeah, I totally did that. I do that often. <laughs> I read mine yesterday as I was recovering from going to sleep entirely way too late and woke up at three in the afternoon. Oh, man. That sounds nice. Except for the, like, needing to do that. But getting to do that sounds nice. Yeah. I went to sleep at, like, four in the morning. It was not great. That was, that was a bad idea, hombre. Was it a fun? Uh, was it a fun New Year's though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played a yeah. We played video games and stuff. We did. Uh, Smash Brothers has a mode called Smashdown, where every time you select a character, it gets removed from the roster. So you have to keep playing until the roster is empty. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we did that. That's about a two-hour thing. <laughs> That's an excellent idea for Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it was really fun. We did that. So we had to stop about maybe half an hour before we were done for a little bit to actually you know ring in the new year and then after we made all our phone calls you know we switched back to you know beating each other up in smash brothers rad okay so comics what where do we want to start today i'm how about we start with what why don't i go ahead and start with the the daredevil story okay yeah i think chronologically works mm-hmm. it oh, is the oldest I guess there technically is an order to some of these things okay so we read one shot daredevil number 191 uh this is from the original daredevil series i know that there have been a bunch of reboots but i think i don't think any daredevil series has made it to issue 191 since the original series this was 
uh, kind of a follow-up to the death of Electra story, Daredevil sits in a hospital room with Bullseye, and he plays a game of Russian roulette with him. And while he's doing that, he recounts the story of uh, a man who appeared to be uh, getting blackmailed. Matt Murdock went to help him out. Daredevil also does some investigation. The man's son is really obsessed with Daredevil and kind of follows Daredevil to the... As, as uh, he's doing his investigation, Daredevil comes across the man who is also apparently a bit corrupt. There, He's like blackmailing folks and he's pulled a gun. And it, Anyway, it's all kind of a messy business. So Daredevil gets in a fight, beats the man, beats the man up in front of his son. And his son winds up taking a gun to school and shooting a kid. And so Daredevil is doing this game of Russian roulette to kind of like... I don't know, purge his soul or something. He also tells uh, Bullseye a story about his dad and this time that his dad beat him when he got in a fight at school and trying to dissuade him to be violent. And the whole thing ends with this game of Russian roulette comes to an end. The final chamber is loaded and pointed at Bullseye. Daredevil pulls the trigger and the punchline, his gun has no bullets which is a metaphor for how he feels about his approach to justice, I guess. Anyway, so this is Daredevil kind of taking his vengeance on Bullseye after the death of Elektra. story was written by Frank Miller, who also did The Pencils, inks by Terry Austin, colors by Lynn Varley, letters by Joe Rosen. This I found... Oh, I've heard of this story off like uh, several times over the years, um, but I was specifically looking for a collection of best marvel comics single issue stories and this one popped up what did you all think uh i felt bad for there for not there i felt bad for bullseye because that dude is just kind of a vegetable apparently in this whole thing he didn't do anything directly connected to this and he's just being threatened with russian roulette by his arch nemesis unable to do anything about it it's i don't know it just kind of felt a little like i get thematically like the whole point of that it did feel a little messed up like he was just a victim to somebody else's therapy session well it yeah it is bullseye though i don't he feel right like calling bullseye a victim here. <laughs> i mean listen a bullseye deserves a beatdown when he's done something but he was just sitting there comatose for you know 40 something pages i don't i don't know a little victimized here. He killed Electra ten issues previous. Yeah. Yeah, and look where that got him. He's <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Out of all the times he deserved this, this probably wasn't it. <laughs> I wonder, because it's, it's all put into dialogue boxes, or not dialogue boxes, but like narration. I don't know why he didn't have speech yeah, bubbles. Captions. Because would he have told Bullseye, like, about his dad and who he is and all this kind of stuff, you know, like that? No, I think the implication is that this is sort of his internal monologue while he's just sitting in the hospital room playing Russian roulette with Bullseye, right? Well, that seems like, you know, quicker than uh, inflicting an entire backstory and, uh, and stuff on him, you know. <laughs> Bullseye just comes in, Daredevil just sits down, plays Russian roulette, looks really troubled and leaves. Like, that's odd, but, you know. The implication here is that Matt Murdock's kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we know Matt Murdock, especially when written by Frank Miller, is kind of a jerk. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, this was written by Frank Miller, huh? Yeah. I, I, I still, like, you know, enjoyed it. I think I think he could have used this to reflect on Electra, his relationship with Electra, and how that relates to his feelings about justice, you know, with her being on the wrong side of the law most of the time, and him, you know, on fighting for the law. Um, maybe rather that rather than bringing in this, this story about Chucky, you know. I don't know. I still liked it. I thought the art was clean. I thought it was well done. Yeah. I, I love that, you know, Frank Miller run on, on Daredevil, so I, this... Is more of that than sign me up, yeah. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about Frank Miller as a creator. When he is good, he is really good. And often he is not as good as I would like him to be. Um, and I'm not sure that I like this story as much as its reputation would warrant. In part because I don't necessarily love the school shooting thing. The kid taking a gun to school and, and shooting his classmates. 
I'm not sure that that is something that is really earned as an outcome. Like, it's it's obvious the kid is having, like, a tough time at home. Uh, his dad is kind of... He's, his dad is kind of sleazy. Uh, he's he's on the take himself, you know. And it's implied, if not outright stated, that the man also is somewhat abusive to his kid. I don't remember right now if we actually see him actually hit his kid at any point. But it's kind of implied that that happens. I think part of it, and I don't know, maybe I'm the one getting a weird reading off of this. It also seems like the kid might also be a little bit on the spectrum. And that's part of the dad's frustration is that he can't... The kid doesn't listen to him like he expects him to. Yeah, it's possible. But, I mean, this is a 1980s comic, I feel like. And so I'm not sure that we really had the vocabulary to talk about autism and and similar personalities, uh, diagnoses. We see that today and it looks like it, but that might not have been an... an, If if they were going for that, it would not have been a nuanced approach. You know, like... (laughs) Right, which was maybe my my concern with this is that it is not really handling the topic. And maybe we're more sensitive to the topic of school shootings now than they were at the time. It's not handling that topic with a lot of nuance. It's like, oh, this kid has a rough home life and then he has one bad day and that turns him into a school shooter? And Daredevil gets to feel bad about that because it's Daredevil's fault? I, I don't know. It's, it's a little more self-pitying than I would really like to see. Well, that is kind of Daredevil's bag is taking, all, all, you know, those things on himself and, and dealing with that guilt, you know, whatever happens. I mean, fair. That good old Catholic guilt. Yeah. Yeah. And like with Spider-Man, there's a little bit of, you know, this is this is my fault, but it also kind of is his fault with Daredevil assuming responsibility for something that isn't really his responsibility. That actually does feel right when you put it like that. I also think that, John, your point is is kind of well taken that I wish this had more to do with Elektra. Um, I feel like this particular internal monologue was maybe not the 100% right approach for this story. Yeah, I mean, why is he there, you know, playing Russian roulette with Bullseye, if not as, as some sort of revenge, you know? That, that just seems like he could have said, you know, this is what you took from me and, and talk about his, his, you know, past with Electra or something. Or yeah. internally monologue as he waves a gun around, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, can, um, I can see why people like this. I don't know that I agree. That's about the best way I can put it. Yeah. I think it's... A, I think it's one of those stories that probably was more influential in its time that now we've had other stories kind of do a similar thing to this more effectively. I feel like this is a public sort of approaches to topics like, you know, child abuse and suicide and and that sort of thing. Like, have gotten more nuanced, we've gotten more sophisticated talking about it, so this feels clunkier. Frank Miller himself has this sort of, like, hard edge that he likes to imbue his characters with that, frankly, I don't think has aged super well but yeah like i could see a time in my life reading this and thinking that this was just the best thing ever and i think that time was around the time that i thought batman the killing joke was really cool Uh, an opinion which i no longer hold yeah that's i mean i know we're talking about daredevil marvel comics and stuff like that but seeing as it's frank miller that's the dark knight returns like the, the, I don't know. The first time I read it, I was like, oh, now I see what everyone's talking about. But I, there are some things in there where I'm like, nah, you know, that, that could have been. Yeah. On, on the whole, though, I feel like Dark Knight Returns actually holds up a little better than some other Frank Miller stuff of this kind of era. Yeah. And like, like this, I, I worry that this one, I don't know. I, I don't think I hate it at all. It's really good quality Frank Miller artwork. I, his his work can get really scratchy, really self-indulgent and rough in a way that I think is kind of ugly. That's not what's happening here. The I think the colors do a lot to help. I think the the setup is actually really compelling. The whole Daredevil playing Russian roulette with with Bullseye thing feels really good. And it feels like the conclusion that he comes to, his his whole uh, tension, this whole dialogue he's having with himself is, you know, I'm trying to fight for justice both as Daredevil and as Matt Murdock. 
and it doesn't feel like either side is doing the job very well. It's kind of like this gun that I have that doesn't actually have any bullets in it. You know, like, I think the metaphor works. I, I As a framing device, I think that whole thing is pretty fantastic. It's the the stories in the middle that I think kind of let this down. The stuff with Battle and Jack Murdoch is stuff that we've seen before. It's stuff that we've had kind of implied about the character before, I believe. And the the stuff with the kid, I just don't think handles, again, the topic of, you know, school shootings and that sort of thing, the, the way that it really ought to. Yeah. I think framing it, like, seeing, thinking about it as, oh, this is him punishing himself, not this is a hero unheroically, you know, taunting one of his villains, I think that helps and makes it, I don't know, read better where you see, like, he's going through some stuff and this is kind of... He's talking it out, you know, mostly to himself. But it, I, I was kind of like, so what's what's the point of all this after I read it? You know, and I took a little thinking like, okay, he's, you know, frustrated with himself because of the limitations that he has because of, you know, what he thinks is right and his values as far as like, you know, trying to be a good guy, trying to fight for the law, but also, you know, working as a vigilante. So, yeah, it's it's that old daredevil story. Yeah, <laughs> if you see it as him as a way to communicate, him, him trying to communicate with Bullseye, it's like, well, you should wait till he's conscious or, like, you know, able to make this a dialogue instead of a monologue. But At the same time, I don't know that I want to see more dialogue with Bullseye. Man's kind of a psycho. Yeah, he wouldn't really add much, would he? <laughs> so this is probably better. Bullseye is, like, one of the most amoral villains in Marvel Comics, Yeah, I think. Doom at least pretends to be moral, you know? Thanos has a sort of logic and a code that can be followed. I don't I don't think the movie gets his his motivations quite right, but there is something to Thanos. Bullseye is just like he's just a murderer. Yeah. Anyway, I think we've exhausted this story. Uh should we move on to I guess are we going in chronological order? Because I think that would put Aldo's story next. I think so. I think technically this story should have gone first, so we're going by chronological. Well, then we're just going to buck the order entirely. Although, why don't you go next? (laughs) Okay. So we read The Amazing Spider-Man Hookie, which is written by Susan Putney. Pencils and inks by Bernie Wrightson. Colors also by him, but in addition, Michelle Wrightson, who I believe is his wife. And letters by Jim Novak. A pretty simple story. We kind of start with Spider-Man just out spider-man and and he meets this 12 year old girl who is a magical individual i don't want to say sorcerer or witch or anything like that i don't think that's really made clear but we do know that she is some sort of magic she she comes from a lineage of other sort of sorcerers or things her name is uh mirandi i hate i hate these names all of the names are terrible yeah yeah sirocker there's two k's in, in there i don't know Rock Kerr? I don't know. Something like that. Uh, she's also just called Spindrifter Mandy by the end of this little story. But she recruits Spider-Man to help her. She's being hunted or haunted oh, by the Thunder Cockroach, which is the best name in this, actually. <laughs> who is also called a Torden Cockerlock. Which I- <laughs> yeah, that's not, not a word that Aldo just made up trying to pronounce something. That is the word. <laughs> yeah, there's also two K's at the end of that, but there's also like 15 in the middle. <laughs> anyway, so Spider-Man is helping her defeat this. It, at the beginning, it is like just a giant cockroach, but every time he attacks it with its webs, it molts and becomes bigger and more gruesome and a little smarter as well. And kind of during this fight, he realizes that, that his webs are kind of the weakness, not necessarily because... It's weak against them, but because it's not really a harmful creature, and that's really the only thing it can do to... It can't really react to the webs, because it's not really... It wasn't conjured to fight Spider-Man. Spider-Man figures this out, and also kind of realizes that the point of this creature is to help rid Mandy, or Morandi, from a curse that she was... That was put upon her that would not let her age. She's been... Uh, like 12 for the last 219 years and she would like to grow up and so this curse was put upon her by i believe it was like her family like her dad or her mom and this creature was meant to help her 
break that curse if, if she could find the power and you know the the self-autonomy i guess to be able to fight this thing and confront it uh it would break her curse in order to be able to defeat it spider-man figures that out kind of hedges the bets on that he's not 100 percent sure that that's actually what's going to happen and kind of forces her to to you know kind of buckle up and and take care of this and do some big incantation which really kind of just looks like she's screaming and she is able to defeat it and break her curse and then uh, tells Spider-Man that she'll be coming for him for her harem when she grows up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the story, I mean, there's quite a bit of story in here, especially with like the girl as we find out her, her backstory and all that stuff. But pretty simple story, all things considered. And yeah, yeah so the creature, I, I did mention that the creature starts out. And he kind of evolves and it kind of gets more grotesque. It gets to the point where he looks like a just a giant like consortium of monsters. And with the art here, it kind of it looks like a ton of monsters, but you can't tell where one begins and the other one ends. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of grotesque. But that's part of the reason why I wanted to read this. Um, anyways, thoughts from you guys on this book? I showed my wife the page where Spider-Man fights the dragon, mm-hmm. and she like raised her eyebrows like whoa that's kind of cool art is really good yeah in this book i liked this more than i thought mostly thanks to the art mm-hmm. bernie writes and tends to do a lot of horror art which i think should be pretty obvious by the end of this book <laughs> really fantastic line work if you guys ever get the chance to look up his stuff he did a book i think i mentioned this at the end of the last podcast or maybe it wasn't in the actual recording but he did uh, an illustrated version of Frankenstein that looks amazing. It's a lot of just black and white line work, but it's it's so beautiful. Yeah. One of the things I like about this book is that Spider-Man is very much drawn in like that 60s art style, which I think is a pretty neat contrast, even in the real world. And when he goes to uh, Mirandi's realm, which I think is called the Cloud Sea. Yeah. 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 The, the biggest complaint that I have with this book is that it is a little too wordy and a little too long. Like you say, yeah. although the story is very simple. I don't think the simplicity is a bad thing. This is superhero comics as metaphor. The girl, I think, if I if I remember correctly, the girl was cursed by her father to protect her from this cabal of other wizards or sorcerers who thought that she would grow up to be an evil sorcerer. And so the her father cursed her to say, well, you won't grow up. And then he created this monster to come after her to kind of force her to mature, you know, magically. And that would kind of trigger a change where she would actually be able to mature. Because even though she's hundreds of years old, she still has the body of a child and the emotional maturity of a child. And this this fight with the monster is is supposed to compel that growing up and as a parent someone who thinks a lot about you know raising his kids to do the right thing trying to teach them good values the the message of you know things might not work out but you cannot get involved beyond a certain point you have to do your best to set them up for success and then just kind of cross your fingers and hope that's a message that i really resonated with it's just buried under a lot of text and behind a lot of pages that I think this story would have benefited from being cut in half as long as they could do so while still keeping those amazing double double page splashes. Yeah, 100%. That's what kind of put me off because it was just walls of text. And a lot of times I hate when, you know, every character has to be connected to something and we can't just have one-off characters. And then I get one like this, and I'm like, man, I wish she had some connection to an existing group from someone. Like, maybe she was an Asgardian orphan or something. Or maybe she's connected to some <laughs> foe of Doctor Strange. Because I had a hard time latching onto. I was like, so it's just you and your poncho and your big pirate ship in this whole this whole atmosphere. Like, your own little world here. That's all, that's all it is. And there's... Nothing else for us to hang our hat on. It's just you and Spider-Man on your pirate boat uh, fighting a cockroach. Uh, so that was a little tricky. And then as it kept going, the art kept getting cooler and cooler and cooler yeah. and cooler. And I was like, all right, all right. I, I do think it's this, funny yeah. that you say that because Spider-Man was also doing the same thing. Like he was trying to find some sort of connection. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, Doctor Strange, you both do magic, right? What about Asgard? These names sound We, we could call him. Yeah. Norse. Yeah. 
You, no, that's do you, yeah. Do you know I Thor? Mean, <laughs> do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> like Spider Man, I was just clutching at any any web, any any <laughs> any string to connect me to. Yeah. Respectfully, John, I'm going to suggest that your issue with this is not with the writing of this story, but with the writing of future stories who never revisited this concept. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they could have. Yeah. My thought is like, I, I think that there's a place for creating new stories and new characters. And honestly, I think this is pretty good for what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I would actually go so far as to say, it's been a while since we found something that I think I would call a genuine buried treasure. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a buried treasure. I would recommend somebody look this up. Yeah. Again, I don't know that that necessarily translates to this story going super high on the list. But, I mean, it, it kind of does, I think. Yeah. It's fun. It's self-contained. It's gorgeous to look at Mm -hmm. the story is a bit long and it's a bit wordy but it's a good story it's a good story that is giving me something the more i think about the story the more i like it i like thinking about the story more than i liked reading it it is it is interesting and a little disappointing like you said that stuff like this doesn't really get revisited because spider-man kind of goes through a bit of a change as well in him realizing that maybe he doesn't have to shoulder everything maybe he can depend or let other people handle things which you know is kind of contradictory to like a lot of modern spider-man who is like i have to carry the weight of everything because nobody dies which isn't a bad thing but it does you know add to his pressures and it is a little refreshing to see him go like you know what i can't trust other people every once in a while and maybe i don't have to do everything like i don't have to be the one who breaks this prophecy clearly it was her although admittedly the book ends with him going right back into it right yeah (laughs) yeah going out on patrol again yeah he gets to like be a mentor which you know usually he's too busy cracking wise to take a moment and try to like you know teach and share something with not really a kid to be honest because you know she's a couple hundred years old but she's not a girl she's not yet a woman yeah she is inexperienced as far as (laughs) fighting those those character building personal battles that spider-man does every week so mm-hmm. he got to he got to be a mentor, and that's nice. I think that's one of the things I wish they would do. I don't want them to totally get rid of Spider-Man, but with so many spider characters, I think it'd be a great idea to retire him and put him in the background as kind of a consistent mentor character to maybe a lot of these new spider people and maybe even being a sort of like spider-verse, like multiversal teacher mentor type yes. character. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, where it's just Miles and like Silk or someone doing the, you know, swinging around, you know, and, and heroing, but he's, you know. Taking a backseat. Un- That'd be interesting. Yeah, like unless he's like really needed, right? Like he does his best to like let these other characters do their thing and he's just there to maybe nudge him and guide him along. And because he's Spider Man, yeah. And because he's Spider Man, he doesn't get Uncle Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see him as a combination of M and Q from Bond, where he's sending everyone out on missions, but also giving them cool spider gadgets that he came up with. And that's maybe what he sees as his responsibility is arming the next generation of crime fighters in yeah. in ways that he didn't have and he had to come up with. But they're that more prepared and then he can kind of focus on the big picture rather than being distracted with all the little things that Spider-Man like, oh no, I'm late for the party because I had to stop that robbery on my way home. And oh, the cake is ruined because I had to web swing all the way here to be here on time. And, yeah. you know, the silly things that, you know, he's had to deal with for forever. He can put on the... Kind of like Batman, if Batman could actually, you know, let his disciples do their thing. Yeah. Every, every superhero story would be better if it ended like Batman Beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where super or Batman doesn't quit per se, he just trains someone else to do the work. Yeah, to, to kind of take his place. Uh, geez, that's like the whole thing about Batman is is he makes superheroes who are better people than he is. That's his whole deal. And mm-hmm. Spider Man would really benefit from doing something very similar. Although I would imagine that he would be kind of bad at it. Yeah, he'd find some way to Peter Parker it up. Yeah, right. Where he'd be, like, very awkward but well-meaning, and so people would see past what he's actually doing to what he means to be doing. I think on the technical aspect of it, he probably wouldn't be very good. 
I think where he would shine would be the emotional aspect, being some sort of support yes. for a lot of these characters. And, you know, because he's messed up a lot and he'll admit it and he'll, I think he'd be a great mentor in the sense of like, you know, I told you to do this and obviously this wasn't the right thing to do, but like, how do you feel? Like, what's your instinct oh tell gosh. you to do now? <laughs> this is like the perfect ending for Spider-Man. I'm getting so excited by this. I want to write it. <laughs> no, right? I can hear the music from Full House where Bob Saget <laughs> would sit down with one of the kids in their room and, and have a, you know, teary talk. You know, that, that's, that's what Spider-Man becomes is, you know, dad to the next Spider-People. Because I always think back to how terribly awkward he was in Avengers vs. X-Men when they asked him to teach, was it Hope? I think it was Hope. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to trainer and he's telling her the whole you know great power great responsibility bit and at some point she's like you're not a very good teacher he's like i know (laughs) (laughs) but it's like oh we need to get back to talking about the book itself but the whole concept of spider-man being like you know really bad at juggling his personal life and his his superhero life as a mentor he could finally like transcend that and be like no my personal life is my mentorship like, this is what I do with my time. This is mm-hmm. who I am when I'm not Spider-Man. I, like, I'm not Spider-Man anymore, but I'm not shirking my responsibility because I'm helping other people. Like, this could work. I'm serious. This could work. <laughs> yeah. Oh. All right. We're sending our pitch to Marvel 2024. <laughs> Superhuman Registration Podcast writes a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, this book is good. Yeah. I don't have much more to say about it. It's really good. <laughs> Yeah, there the page where it's yeah Spider Man and the Dragon and his spider shield or his web shield, so great. So it's so yeah. good, and I've never seen that before. I really like the shot where that monster has like evolved, and it's just just like a ton of monsters. Like it's it just looks like it's a barrage of different monsters. Kind of like I described it, like you can't tell where one begins and where where one ends because they are all one thing, and like it's such a. <laughs> This is a bit of an oxymoron. It's so beautifully grotesque in the way it's yes. illustrated. Yeah. Very yes. Yeah. Um, gosh. Okay. No, I did think of one other thing that I wanted to say. And I feel like I've said this on the podcast before. Usagi Ojimbo is one of my all-time favorite comics. Oh, you've never mentioned that ever. <laughs> <laughs> there was a recurring character named Sakura who shows up and... Whenever Sakura's around, this is a supernatural story. Usagi Ojimbo's going to fight ghosts. And that's weird because normally the comic is a very grounded comic. It's samurai, it's sword fighting, it's, you it's know, a bunny. stuff that... It, yeah, it's a rabbit, but otherwise <laughs> it, it, it's stuff that is grounded in sort of like real world action. But one of the things that's so compelling and so cool about the character of Miyamoto Usagi is that he can kind of fit into these crazy stories uh, where now he's fighting a demon. And you don't see that with Spider-Man very often, but he weirdly works in this sort of environment. Yeah, I can't remember what book it was. There was like a team-up book with him and Strange where like there is a thing about where he notices the the similarity between Spider-Man's like web-slinging little hand action and like Doctor Strange's hand motions and stuff like that. And he kind of talks about there being some sort of connection. But Spider-Man's been through so much and been put in so many places that, like, at this point, it really doesn't feel out of place to put him in, like, a magic world or in a space story or, you know, time travel shenanigans. Like, it just... The character's been put through a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He can do basically anything and, like, fit into almost any kind of story. Yeah. He can do anything a spider can, even. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) All right. Should we move on? I think we should move on. That means it's time for Cloak and Dagger, which I, I feel like talking about it, it's like, oh, it's Cloak and Dagger. We need to whisper about it because it's secretive. But no, it's just a pun on their um, powers, I guess. So we read Cloak and Dagger in The Broken Church, which is a single issue from 2010. This comes out after the Dark Reign, where Norm Osborn has taken over the Avengers and Cloak and Dagger were fooled into... Uh, joining his team, written by Stuart Moore, Mark Brooks did the pencils, Walden Wong did the inks, Emily Warren did the colors, and Dave Sharp did the letters. Cloak is with the X-Men, and they find out at the beginning of the book, after she's been training with them and really holding up her own in a fight with the uh, young X-Men, that, oh, she's not a mutant. It really was just 
you know, super drugs that gave her powers. Same with uh, Cloak. He is back in his neighborhood in South Boston. They're kind of taking some time apart. And uh, Cloak's old girlfriend sees that, you know, lets him know she knows that he's Cloak. Introduces him to some friends of hers that try to brainwash him into believing that his powers are wrong, that he shouldn't have them, and that he should work towards not ever using them. Cloak uh, comes immediately to rescue him once she, um, you know, figures out, like, I haven't heard from him in a couple days, something's wrong. She finds him, the X-Men follow her, and they make short work of these guys. And we see that Tyrone, uh, Tyrone, you know, Cloak's girlfriend, Tia, she... um, also had powers of some kind that's not quite sure she's a teleporter but she's maybe unstuck in time and has some sort of traveling powers she has done this brainwashing project this process before so we end with cloak and dagger reconciling in this old rundown church in boston that they've met in and and you know shared moments in and um kind of helped each other by the way their powers work where Cloak absorbs some of Dagger's light force so that he doesn't grow too dark and she doesn't, you know, overload with her power. But this uh, comic ends with Tia being brainwashed again and those two reconciling and kind of resetting everything back to square one with Cloak and Dagger as kind of just a duo team on their own. Not part, not X-Men, not Avengers, not anything, but just two superheroes just trying to help, you know, people on that level and on kind of a smaller scale team. Uh, or partnership. I thought it was pretty good. Um, it wasn't much. It was kind of very clearly like, a, you know, resetting the table, reset, like kind of getting us back to a status quo, I think, with them. What did you guys think? I'm real uncomfortable with the whole, I'm going to give you my light because it heals you. Yeah, give me all that light, girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> uh, not super uncomfortable, but it is a little... <laughs> okay, I'm super uncomfortable. <laughs> at the least codependent, and at the worst, or at the most, <sighs> yeah. It, does it help to know that they switched powers at one point? <laughs> Not really. <No? laughs> Not really. Frankly, like, that might be the thing that keeps me from ever being a Cloak and Dagger fan. I've wanted to, I've wanted to like these characters, but every time I read one of their stories, there's always this bit about, I need her light. No, he needs to eat my light. You don't understand. Ew. It feels like it feels like simultaneously like a sexual thing, but also like a drug thing. Like, I don't. Yes. <laughs> yes. It feels exactly like that. And that's and that's bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, because I don't think it's intended to be. That's the no, problem. it just feels accidental. It feels like they can't work their way out of that they're just like that well this is this is what we're stuck with (laughs) it's i i it's a shame because like it's an interesting dynamic where like they they if if you took that out of it or if it was some other kind of way where the power is exchanged or whatever it's interesting to have two heroes that rely on each other and even when they have like little tiffs like they're having in this book they still have to stick together for both of them to succeed and protect each other it is a shame the way that it it comes across and there is like always romantic tension between them and i think they are really a couple if it comes down to it it always yeah even well intentions it sounds like you know when someone several generations older than you accidentally uses slang that has a gross connotation (laughs) and they have no idea they're doing it It, a little bit like that yeah that's cap for real for real (laughs) (laughs) that yeah intentional or not that metaphor is always there with cloak and dagger and they are always going to be the codependent teenage drug and sex havers even though that's (laughs) not what they're supposed to be yeah it's yeah it's uh i haven't read much if any cloak and dagger i've I've always been interested in the characters again because like i've always liked kind of like steven i've liked the idea of two characters who are kind of like their powers are depending on on one another right yeah and I maybe I don't know maybe there are some good gems and maybe I just need to you know put in the work and read more of their comics. But as far as like an introduction, I don't know. This was this was okay for me. It was interesting. I like the whole aspect with the whole you know cloak maybe trying to get some sort of semblance of like his normal life back and maybe trying to like split off from from Dagger, but maybe you know like their powers again. That whole analogy to addiction. It's like I can't quit you and. <laughs> 
so so I don't know. It's it's a little it's a little muddy is the way I would put it. I think for like a first time introduction, it's um, I hope there's better stuff out there. This was also done in like 2010, and <laughs> I know I know we don't like to talk about this stuff all that much. We because we used to do it a lot when we started the podcast, but uh, her costume's not super great. Like it's oh it, my gosh, Dagger has one of the worst costumes in comics. Yeah. <laughs> It's fine for what it is. I'm not going to harp on it too much. What I thought was hilarious, and it's only because the two pages are like right next to each other, which are pages are pages 18 and 19, where she's yelling at Scott for not helping them. And Scott's like, I don't, we don't have the resources right now. And she's like, she says, uh, you mean it doesn't sound like a mutant problem. And then he you know, takes a phone call and leaves. The thing that cracks me up about this is that when she tells that to him, we get a shot of... Cyclops kind of squeezing this phone, right? That's like at his hip. And like in that panel, we barely get like side of his hip. And then the next page, like the first panel is Dagger speaking to the rest of the group. And we get all butt. <laughs> Just like 30% butt on that panel. And yeah, it's- <laughs> the fact that we got no Scott butt. And all cloak butt. I'm just like, come on, equal opportunity. <laughs> if we're gonna do this, everybody's butt gets on the panel. <laughs> Aldo votes for more butts. We do get a little <laughs> bit of Namor butt, but you know that's not really in short supply. So take that. For- it's also in keeping with Namor's character. The I think because here's the thing. I think aesthetically, this costume, Dagger's costume, is kind of on the same page as some of Emma. Emma Frost. I almost called her Emma Scott. Emma Frost costumes. (laughs) Right? Like, the difference is, like, that's in character for the White Queen. Now, some of the White Queen's costumes, like, where she has, like, the X that just reveals basically her whole chest. Like, I think those costumes are pretty tacky. I think they're pretty ugly. But they are at least in character for her. And so I am, like, fine with them. Dagger's a teenage girl. Yeah. Even when they, like, have them, you know, kind of mentor the runaways, they're still supposed to be, like, kids themselves, you know? Yeah. The way that they're used in, like, Civil War is they're kind of, you know, the the next generation, the young kids, the ones we have to tell, like, okay, Cloak, I'm going to need you to really get all of us here and bring us to Times Square for our final showdown, you know? It's, yeah, it, it maybe it would help if, like, they had a, a Cloak and Dagger are grown-ups now and, uh... Let's uh, make them less creepy. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how you make them less creepy because the the on the surface metaphor of their powers is toxic. It's a toxic relationship. Even if they are happy, there's codependency. There's this neediness, and it's not. I feel like there is a really good out of continuity story with Cloak and Dagger that ends very tragically for both of them, and. Otherwise, I don't know what else you can do with the characters. I genuinely don't. Yeah, it feels like there is the potential for something great, but it's held back. Yeah, there's, there's that, and that's maybe it. Unlike her costume. Her costume, which has no restraint. <laughs> <sighs> the cards aren't even that good in Marvel Snap. I'm sorry. <laughs> Cloak's power is fine, but hers is like very it's contingent fine. on... I could justify this if they were tournament viable, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> There's too much Jeez. randomness in, in the move decks for Cloak and Dagger to be useful. Well, hey, listen, I thought I was, uh, you know, bringing us something new and, and fresh. And I was like, this is a staple of the Marvel Universe. And I read through it and I was like, yep, drugs and, drugs and sex. Okay, great. This will, mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, I can't really say that it's a stable or not. This is the first like real cloak and dagger story I've read. I've I've read a couple, and they're, they're this is kind of what they're like. <laughs> the first Spider-Man that I read featured cloak and dagger, and that, that was when I was a kid. So, like in my mind, it's like, yep, they're part of it. They're important, <laughs> but it was really just they were like you know less than ten years old, I think, and so they were like, we'll 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 throw them in the back of a spectacular Spider-Man annual, and uh, you know get some more eyes on them, I guess, but. Yeah, there are very regular attempts to make Cloak and Dagger work, and I I want them to keep trying because mm-hmm. the characters there's potential there. There's 
it, like interracial couples are weirdly almost a cliche now, but I still think there's a lot of room for good positive portrayals of interracial couples. Yeah. And there is like something interesting to be done with like their differing backgrounds. Yes, and that's that's actually kind of where I was going to go. There is a really great opportunity here to highlight, you know, some of the differences between uh, the communities that they come from and like use the comic as a way of maybe exploring how to bridge some of those gaps. Like I think there's a lot of potential in these characters. I love how we have the story about Cloak and Dagger and we're not really talking about the story, but we're talking about high concept of what we would do with these characters. But I think that's because at the end of the day, this is... I, I'm glad we read it because I don't think we have... I don't think we have read any Cloak and Dagger for the podcast. Yeah, I don't, I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. And so we definitely had a hole that we needed to plug there. Again, much like her suit. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, keep trying. I don't think this is this is it. I do think it's a good thing to keep them separate from the X-Men. These two do not belong on the X-Men. Not just because yeah. they're not mutants, but because it doesn't really fit with, I think, what these characters are, are meant to do, meant to be. There is something interesting about the X-Men in this book that I wish would get explored a little bit more, which is, like, how... They are heroes, right? Supposedly. But they focus so much on mutant stuff that, like, they ignore the rest of the stuff if it's not really part of their agenda. Which is a fair criticism, I think, for a team of, like, 200-plus superheroes. There are are dangerous lines that you have to walk when you do that, because I think that can get into... Uh, some pretty sketchy territory, mm-hmm. especially considering how often X-Men are used as metaphors for, you know, underprivileged groups. Yes. It's like, you don't care enough about the well-being of white people. How dare you, right? Yeah, but it's, I don't know, I feel like nowadays it's uh, still, it's it's harder now to keep that going when like three, four, maybe five of your major leaders are all white people. So, I don't know. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> like i no, get i, I get I what get they're it. an allegory for and you know when it works it works really well but also i don't know it very frequently <laughs> doesn't work <laughs> yeah <laughs> but because that allegory is there like that is something that they touch on we're really off topic now but like civil war i remember there's a scene where i think iron man visits emma frost and tries to get her to join his side of the the registration act conflict and she's like no nah, we good this is this is a human problem. Mutants are just going to sit out. Like that's a thing. They do deal with that. Yeah. I you know I'll keep looking for good examples of them where it's not creepy, but it is. It might be baked in, but we'll see. I think it is baked in, but that doesn't mean you can't have something like I don't know breakthrough. Break on through to the other side. <laughs> a positive read or a generous read on this could be they bonded through trauma and are you know helping each other to get by but it's it's drugs and there's tension there you know romantically and so it's always going to be like so it becomes codependent and creepy which is a shame because you know it'd be it'd be nice if it was just you know we we stick together because we're all that we have you know we ready to rank yeah i'm interested to see where these are gonna go yeah me too i always like the the single issues even if they're not always winners. But we did pretty good, I think, this time. So currently on our list, we have 266 stories. Very, very tippy-top is Ms. Marvel, No Normal. Very, very bitty-bottom is Spider-Man, The Evil That Men Do. Single-issue stories tend to... Oh, well, I think our number two is the Spider-Man origin story, Spider-Man number one. Pretty darn good comic. What is our lowest ranked single issue? Eminem Punisher at number 262. Cool. So that doesn't really help us narrow it down. Um, <laughs> where do we want to rank this? What was it called? Was it called Roulette? Okay, where do we want to rank the Daredevil story? Roulette. Right out the gate. Death of Electra. Last Hand. That's number 14. This is mm-hmm. not nearly that good. Yeah. I'm I'm going down the list, and I keep seeing I keep seeing things that I'm like, no, nah, a little lower, no, nah, a little lower. You know, I I liked it, particularly the art. You know, um, I still think it goes under Secret Wars, which is 122, not quite halfway down the list. But I don't know. I think I think finding a, another one shot to compare it to might be more fair. But that's the kind of where I'm starting to look. 
I don't know that it goes above Star Wars. I was going to say, I don't know that it goes below Secret Wars. Oh. Well, do you want it higher? I think Secret Wars is where... I kind of want it a little higher. Not much higher. But Secret Wars, honestly, isn't that good. It's interesting as sort of a, a historic artifact. And it has moments in it. But, like, this is probably on par with... Oh, gosh, The Good Old Days. That's the story where She-Hulk defends Captain America at trial. Mm-hmm. Like, it's probably comparable to that. Good Old Days is definitely better. This just feels disjointed. Like, in this moment, he's he's bringing up this Chucky story. It's like, of all the people, you know, Bullseye would not care about that. Bullseye would be like, oh, two more targets. Like, he's not going to care about these these innocents that Daredevil is torn up about. Or, like... This guy who turns out to be a crook who's tried to, you know, hire him as a lawyer. You, If you give me a range, I will just pick the lowest part of that range. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have strong feelings about this book, but I don't think it's as good as other people would try to make it out to seem. This feels very much like a, yo, Reservoir Dogs is the best Tarantino movie. Because they cut a dude's <laughs> ear off. It, has, it gives me that sort of vibe. Yo, this is the best Daredevil story. He plays Russian roulette with a comatose bullseye. I do not at all disagree with that characterization. <laughs> I think that is 100% accurate. Yeah, and like the thing is, Reservoir Dogs is a good movie. It's by no means the best Tarantino movie, but... And that's not even the best part of the movie. That part's kind of the messed up part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyways, but yeah... <laughs> just gives me that okay yeah so what if we put it just under the the star wars new hope manga i'm okay with that listen i'd like to be a compromiser like whichever founding whichever founding father that was that was a compromiser but i can't remember his name so forget him i don't know the one they they told us about in history books is like oh he was the one yeah i i would put it lower um because i'm looking at stay angry which was dumb but fun and i would rather read that again same with, like, Squirrel Girl Volume 1, again. I would put this above, like, Vader to the letter. Which one is that? Uh, that's the one shot where this guy is, like, telling Vader, like, bossing Vader around, and Vader finds a loophole in his orders and kills. Like, it was it was fun. Because Palpatine was trying to teach him to be the big dog in the room every time. Yeah, I would put this under that. <laughs> I'd put this under this one that I don't even remember. Yeah. And now, is it because I saw Empire Strikes Back on the big screen for the first time this week? Maybe. Shut up. <laughs> we're old, but we're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. There's a there's an old th- a theater that plays old prints, like old movies and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, caught it this weekend. But nice. Anywho, I, I would I would love to go to one of those where they play the movie, but they have like an actual orchestra playing the the music. Uh, I did that with Spider Verse. I did that with Spider Verse. Oh, it was how awesome. great is it? It was it was only like a twelve piece orchestra, but mm-hmm. they also had a DJ and they sounded great. And awesome. it uh, that movie like you think I've seen this a hundred times. Is this really going to add anything? Yes, yes, a hundred percent, yes. <laughs> Ironically, the live orchestra didn't add much to the experience of watching the musical La La Land. I think it's more telling of La La Land. Yeah, <laughs> though I did watch that this weekend too and had equal parts. I love this. Boy, it's a real bummer and I'm sad now, <laughs> you know, like equally like, <laughs> oh, this is great. And then I was hearing Steven's voice in my head like, you know, they're not really singers. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but shut up. <laughs> so, like, No lie. First conversation I had with my wife was uh, an argument over the relative merits of La La Land. I loved it. She hated it. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I'm well, we still got married, so... I was going to say, I'm glad you can work. You worked it out enough to <laughs> have children together. I'm happy you can accept to be wrong every once in a while. <gasps> but Aldo, it's so good. Is it? I I, I don't want to... It feels... I'm sorry. It just kind of feels like White People the Musical. I haven't watched it. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it kind of is White People the Musical. <laughs> I'll watch it at some Ryan Gosling's right? trying to save the genre of jazz, so... You know... Oh, yeah. he's mm. he's arguing with John Legend about it. So you might be right about that a little bit. He, he's trying to Marty McFly jazz. <laughs> yes, I mean, 
Yeah, absent any other better metaphor that is not coming to me right now. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so is the takeaway here like 131? Are you looking to push this lower or what's, what's going that, on? That's my vote is 131. Steven, your rebuttal? That Grant Morrison Fantastic Four story was pretty not great. I would put this above that. As a compromise, let's put it at 131. Excellent. Insert gavel sound here. <laughs> <laughs> I would think Spider-Man goes a little higher. Spider-Man hooky. Spider-Man hooky. We should have we should have ended with Spider-Man hooky because I think that was easily the best of the stories that we read. Yeah, but also a lot of our conversation was like, what if we retired Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> because... There's not much more to say about the story other than, this is really good. You yeah. should read it. It's very pretty. It looks it's, so it's good. It's beautifully grotesque. Where would I put this? Okay, here's a good comparison. Better or worse than Forget Me Not? You know what I was thinking of comparing huh. it to, actually, was what if magic became Sorcerer Supreme? So that's my first comparison as well. It's not as good, though. And so I think it goes lower than... than at least that's my opinion, is it goes lower than what if magic became Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah, there's a bit more to that story. I agree. I would put it, I don't know. See, now I'm looking at The Boys Are Back, which is the first trade of Heroes for Hire, which is Sanford Green art on uh, Power Man and Iron Fist. That, that was so good. And the main argument oh my gosh. for this Spider-Man is like classic Spider-Man look with crazy monster art and these great, beautiful two-page spreads. Great backgrounds, too. You know, like almost an illustrative or, or like more like painterly style, and it's great. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I would, put it, I would put it at 55 above Nick Fury okay. Jr. That's my vote. What if magic is actually beneath Forget-Me-Not? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Yeah. Surprisingly. Okay, yeah. So, surprisingly, yeah. Forget-Me-Not was really good, though. I, mm -hmm. like, I still think of that book pretty fondly. But yeah, okay. Not as good as magic. So, we can put it, we can put it lower. 55. Oh, see, and I was trying to put it higher because you were comparing it to Forget-Me-Not. I was trying to take that opportunity and swoop in. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it goes higher. Though I really don't. That's fair. Doctor Afra is really good. I really like Doctor Afra. And that original script adaptation was pretty neat. Star Wars Legacy one through seven. I don't remember much of that. Better than you expected it to be. That was yeah. the the story of Luke yeah. Skywalker's great 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 grandson, who hated being a Jedi. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah I I, I wouldn't want to put this below. Escape to Terror! Because of, because apart from the title, I don't remember much <laughs> of Escape to Terror! It's John Byrne and Stan Lee. Isn't that a, a Silver Surfer? Yeah, it's a Silver Surfer book. Yep, that was the Silver Surfer kind of origin retelling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would I would put this above Junior, personally. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, another one that I think... Feels, that one feels like a hidden gem, but that's because I haven't read any new comics. And so they are comparable. I think it's better. So yeah, I'd put it right above that that Nick Fury crazy art jam. Yeah. How do, how do you feel about that, Compromiser? Very happy about that. Sanford Green has been putting out some incredible stuff on Instagram. If you don't follow him already, I think, if I remember correctly, it's been a lot of Spider-Man like stuff from across the Spider-Verse. I follow so many people, though, so, like, his stuff probably has just escaped me. Yeah, I hate that, where it keeps suggesting stuff, and it's like, no, show me the people I'm following. And once I've gone through all of their stuff, then tell me if there's anything new. Okay, Cloak and Dagger. Below Roulette, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I liked, I think Roulette honestly may have wound up a little too low, but since that's where it is... Cloak and Dagger definitely goes beneath it. Yeah, yeah, no, no argument there. The art, as you know, male gazy as it is, but that's a lot of it is you know Dagger's outfit. But it does have a bit and more camera of a, positioning. Yeah, um, it does have like I don't know. I I like it as far as like it's a bit more of a cartoony style. It felt a little like anime inspired. Yeah. Like yeah. in the colors and the lighting specifically. Yeah, but it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't off-putting, which sometimes that'll do that to me. It reminded me a lot of specifically like early uh, Takeshi Miyazawa. 
which we've read a few. Although you can just cut me in going, oh, yes, of course, because I, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot, John, you. Um, I like Takeshi Miyazawa. I'm sure I did, too, at the time. I just At, at the top of my head, I can't recall. Oh, oh wait, hold on. He's Mary Jane movie. Homecoming. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Wait, wasn't... Oh, the other one I was thinking of... Was it Takeshi Miyazawa who did the art for Big Hero 6? No, I don't think so. Oh, that's who it reminded me of, whoever did that. Who did the art for Big Hero 6? No, that's what I'm trying oh to gosh, find. We cannot, we cannot talk about the books <laughs> that we actually came here to talk about. <laughs> it was David Nakayama who did Big Hero 6. Ah, yes. Um, anyway. Cloak and Dagger. Was Cloak and Dagger worse than Big Hero 6? No. No. Where is that? Where is... I don't even know. Big Hero 6 oh, Big is Hero 253. 6 is really low. Oh, Number 253. Wow. No, it's not. It's not. It's not worse than the Marvel Zombies books. The terrible line is Galacta, daughter of Galactus, I think. I thought it was Punisher. Either way, it's not bad. It's just... Mm-hmm. It's not. It's... it's, it's it, Yeah. <laughs> it's just not bad. Uh, I don't know. Maximum Carnage is low, but I can't remember if it's low because it was gross, but still well made. No, Maximum Carnage is bloated and unnecessary. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is not bloated. It's 33 it's, quick pages. So. Yeah. But Maximum Carnage got a Sega Genesis game, which I feel like makes it rank higher. N- okay. Weren't Cloak and Dagger <laughs> in Maximum Carnage? I think they I were. Think I think they appeared for a bit. Really? I thought... So maybe I'm misremembering. I think the some of the Avengers did. Captain America is definitely in it. I would put this uh, just because I know I can't win this fight, but I would put this maybe above War of Kings. But we, I cannot in good conscience put this above Longshot as much as I don't like Longshot. <laughs> I agree with this placement <laughs> on principle. <laughs> what number are you putting? What number is that? I'm looking like at two oh eight ish. You see, I was going to put it. Above Star Wars of Valentine's Story, but under Exiles, because with all the problems that Exiles had, I still liked the like framework of it and how it was this you know world hopping group of heroes that that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a pretty much straightforward like they're apart, they're they're unsure of where they stand with each other. Bad things happen, they get back together. Ta da! Like it was pretty much just we're resetting everything so that we can get going with a new series, and it was. You know, kind of like even to the point where they like are meeting up in this, you know, church that they had visited as, you know, um, you know, well, that's fine. Steven. Yep. I actually like that rationale. 212. Cool. You swayed me. Cue the Michael Buble. I was thinking (laughs) it and I was hoping you weren't going to say it. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of things that we were hoping weren't going to happen next time we convene. We will be reading a couple of stories from the Ultimates universe of comics, which I don't know. I, I think this all came up because I mentioned in the chat that, you know, we haven't really read much Fantastic Four or Iron Man dedicated stories. And so we're going to read both of those from the Ultimates universe. Ultimate Iron Man from 2005 and Ultimate Fantastic Four uh ultimate iron man is a mini series so it's issues one through five uh ultimate fantastic four was the start of an ongoing uh but the first arc also ends after issue five so we are reading five issues of that one as well did not realize this when i suggested it ultimate fantastic four is a bendis joint oh oh right yeah 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 we've read a lot of bendis i'm okay with that I was I was a little bummed out that we were going into the Ultimate Universe, but you have polished this turd for me, and I now look forward to oh, no. uh, serving it up. <laughs> Temper your expectations. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Bendis did write the Ultimate Spider-Man story where Wolverine body-swapped with Spider-Man and tried to have sex with Mary Jane, who was a teenager. Also, a lot of... there's Listen, the Ultimate Universe is remembered fondly, but kind of incorrectly. Yeah, and I'm just going to say, like, Fantastic Four and um, Iron Man were not, were two of the titles that did not come out looking super great from the Ultimate Universe. Here's the thing. I've read a ton of Ultimate X-Men. I remember liking exactly zero of Ultimate X-Men. Why do you keep reading? (laughs) I was in college. 
It was either that or go on a date. <laughs> I think Ultimate <laughs> X-Men had... I remember it having some slight gems, but not a whole lot. I, I, again, the standout title from the Ultimate Universe was Spider-Man. And even on a reread, it's not great all the time. I do think that there's a point where I just kind of want to turn this podcast into a reread, a deep dive into the uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. I've been saying that for years. I know. I, <laughs> I think know. It's, I think it's just going to happen naturally anyway, the, the amount of Spider-Man we read. <laughs> it is so hard for me not to suggest Spider-Man stories every week. Although I think one of these weeks I will suggest the story where Wolverine body swaps with Ultimate Spider-Man and that's on Mary Jane, and then we will be cured. <laughs> No, gross. What? No. <sighs> well, it can't be worse than a teleporter teleporting themselves inside a rapist and exploding them the inside out to get revenge for a black cat. <sighs> wait, what? That happened. Don't in one do of the, the crime books. if you can't. Don't do the crime if you can't commit. Or wait, hold it. Don't do the crime if you can't do the teleportation revenge. That's the evil that men do. The the lowest. <laughs> Is that how that book ended? Yeah. There was a teleporter. Yeah. Oh, gosh teleported inside his evil brother <laughs> oh yeah kevin smith and terry dotson we need to rank it lower on our list <laughs> yeah we need to we need to dig a hole and put it in just give it a negative it. ranking <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's the lowest ranked book in our list but yeah we can figure out a way to make it lower <laughs> we just read more good books yeah exactly we start ranking things like you know airline pamphlets and on vomit bags and you know uh, notices inside public bathrooms and yeah <laughs> the back of cereal boxes back of cereal boxes rank very high I have a kid they're miraculous there's a peanut butter cereal that's doing a Dragon Ball Z promotion and there's 12 different cereal boxes one for a different character so guess who's going to be eating a lot of peanut butter cereal in the next couple of months <laughs> I hope there's more Go protein on. Than sugar, but I know that it there won't be. So sorry, Aldo. I gotta get Gaku. <laughs> Who would win in a fight between Gaku and Luffy? <laughs> I hate it when I say it. I hate it even more when I hear somebody else call him Gaku. <laughs> <laughs> how so many of the the points that i make in the podcast just get met with an uh-huh because y'all didn't actually hear it because my audio cut out <laughs> we just wait the appropriate amount of time and then we're like yeah i'm sure it was good whatever you said uh-huh <laughs> i see that i've known you long enough that i can assume that eight times out of ten you probably made a valid point oh that's that's nicer than what i expected you to say uh <laughs> <laughs> it's just easier not to argue steven uh <laughs> And I can't argue if I didn't hear it. I'll just assume you made a good point. Yeah. That's a valid perspective, Stephen. Here's mine. <laughs>